Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Leary, and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview another one of my brilliant cousins, Patrick Geraghty, all the way from Boston, Massachusetts at 6am. How are you today? Good morning. Thanks for having me. And uh, well done to you and your team for XJob, not just the organization itself, but the podcast. It seems to be growing by leaps and bounds. Thank you. Yeah, it is. And it's so much fun because I get to meet great people, great family members, and I don't know, it's hard to describe, but it's it's just, this is social history. And what I want to do at some point is I want to get all the cousins and we'll just talk about our families, our history and how our lives have gone on. And, and when I'm in Boston later on, hopefully I'll be able to catch up with your mum and, you know, because there's some questions that I've got that I'd like, you know, if, if possible to answer, but, or if I can put them through you, if you can ask her, I'd be really grateful. Oh, absolutely. And I have to say my mother at 97, um, I don't know if you remember the miniseries from the 70s Roots. Yeah, but there was a character called uh, I think it was Aunt Kizzy, and she knew who begat who. Uh, she knew the entire family history, and that is my mother's role right now. She still she calls me by the dog's name sometimes, <laughs> but she can remember exactly <laughs> who you're related to, what the connection is. It's it's really amazing. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, Patrick, we're back in Boston now, but you've traveled the world. You've done some fantastic things. But where did it all start for you? Where were you born? And what was your life like as a child? I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, in particular the Dorchester neighborhood, uh, home of Mark Wahlberg um, at St. Margaret's Hospital, and uh, grew up in a neighborhood of Boston. And Boston, uh, for your listeners, is a collection of neighborhoods. Um, You have the downtown area. I grew up, I was born in Dorchester, grew up in the Rosendale neighborhood. And then after my dad passed away when I was in college, we moved to West Roxbury. So all within the city of Boston. And uh, my parents immigrated from Ireland, like everyone else's parents at the time, immigrated from someplace. Um, it was not particularly amazing to be a first-generation American. Um, I think pretty much everyone on my street was either an immigrant, first-generation, or perhaps second-generation American. It was quite the norm. Um, attended parochial schools, Catholic schools uh, through college. Um, I went to Boston, you know, Boston College, graduated from Boston College. Then I joined the military, um, and that was really inspired by one of our other extended family cousins, um, uh, second cousin of uh, my mom's, and he had been in the in the Navy during World War II. So I went to officer candidate school immediately after graduation. Um, was commissioned in November of that year. I served five years active duty, um, left active duty, attended law school, um, but I stayed in the Navy Reserves. And and that I think when you ask where did it all begin, it was probably the decision to join the military. Because uh, that opened up all the other doors. Um, I practiced law for about 14 years, and then I was uh, recalled to active duty in 2006. Uh, and every reservist in the states sort of had a number on their back. You were going to be activated uh, at one time or another. And um, you know, we were really in the middle of a two-pronged war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, so my number came up, and I got the weirdest email: "Do you want to go to Iceland for a year?" And I think my answer was, uh, heck yes, I do. 
I don't even think I asked my wife a, a question about it. Um, I said, yeah. And uh, that one year turned into two and then it turned into three. My wife and kids were up there with me for quite a while. Um, but I was working out of the U.S. Embassy at the time. And the um, I was brought up there because the Department of Defense had closed Naval Air Station Keflavik at the end of September 2006. And I showed up the, the beginning of October. And my role was really just sort of maintenance and security of this facility. We, um, If you land at the Keflavik International Airport, um, to the southeast is the, the former Naval Air Station Keflavik. And they dual use runways, they're military and civilian runways. And so it's all part of the NATO infrastructure. And we still had over 100 buildings uh, that we were transitioning out of our possession into the possession of the Icelanders and back into the NATO uh, inventory. Um, so, but that role really morphed into a defense and security advisor role uh, because suddenly Iceland doesn't have a military as most people know. And they went to the Admiral that was on the base. Uh, he was their go-between. and. Um, they're actually their defense agency is housed within their ministry for foreign affairs. So they don't have a defense department. It's right. just a couple guys, literally a couple guys um, within their foreign foreign affairs group. And um, I started, you know, uh, you know, how do you get light bulbs for the uh, certain lights? And uh, how do you get antenna parts for certain military air, you know, military antennas that are still there? And uh, so it was really fascinating and also connecting them with the DOD and NATO infrastructure, because they didn't have those lines of communications established. That had been handled formally by the base. Um, really a fascinating job, and one that was just sort of fell into my lap. Uh, but I worked out of the U.S. Embassy in Reykjavik for three years. And for me, it was you know a well-paid internship. I got to learn how the State Department had worked. I, I never really worked with the State Department. We had, during my time in the military, we had some experience with embassies, um, usually just social functions. Um, but this is the first time day to day. And for me, diplomatic work was always shrouded in mystery. I, I assumed it was, you know, guys with trench coats, um, briefcases with hand handcuffed to your wrist, diplomatic couriers, you know, very intriguing stuff. Uh, little did I know uh, it's uh, can be fairly mundane day to day. Uh, civil servants, actually foreign service officers, uh, not civil servants. And it was just kind of a fascinating uh, life. And I didn't give any thought to joining until the ambassador suggested that I start the process. Um, which I did in 2008, 2009. And um, I basically I got on the job in 2010. So I left Iceland uh, the fall of 2009 and I joined the State Department uh, June of 2010. And in the State Department, it's been, let me see where I've served, um, Norway, Mexico, Suriname and South America, Afghanistan, and then ironically enough, back to Iceland with the State Department. And that's where I ended my State Department career. Where I retired out of Iceland. That's fantastic, and it's fair to say that you've you learned all of the languages, didn't you, before you undertook the different roles? It would be fair to assume that it would not actually be accurate. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I studied Spanish and Dutch. Right. Uh, they speak Dutch in Suriname. Um, I would say I need a, a very long runway in either language to sort of get going into the conversational era. But in in Mexico, I was actually a consular officer. Every American diplomat. Um, as sexy as you might think that job is, they have to do their time at the visa window of processing visas. And oh, okay. I did two years in Mexico. So I can ask you all sorts of questions in Spanish. Um, I, I really, really, really feel bad when I meet a Spanish speaker because inevitably my conversation with them 
devolves into a visa interview. Like, how long have you been, you know, what's your reason for traveling to the United States? Do you have family in the United States? You know, uh, do you, what's your job here in your home country? That sort of thing. It's very kind of funny. Um, but yeah, it's really fascinating to be an older language learner, but that's, that's a conversation for another time. Yeah. You know, for anybody with kids listening, teach them early. Oh yeah. A whole lot easier. Absolutely. So, um, but yeah, it, it was a kind of a fascinating thing to operate in another language. So when you joined the Navy, you've gone, I mean, Boston College is a, is a, a world-renowned college. I mean, sports and, and, and everything there. Was, were you selected from the college? Did you have the recruitment team come in and select no, you? No, I, I looked. Um, I, I, had, I did not enter college with the idea of going in the military. That's something that evolved while I was at college. And the way it works, if you're in college, we have this ROTC program, Reserve Officer Training Corps. Um, and you're a student warrior, I guess, for lack of better phrases. Uh, and you do drills, you do, um, military science courses alongside your normal academic courses. Apparently Boston college at one time in the seventies did have ROTC, but after, you know, during Vietnam, after Vietnam, there was a downshift. A lot of colleges got rid of it. Um, BC, one of them, and the Navy was trying to get back into Boston College. And there was, it was really just an administrative negotiation about would your military science courses be reflected on your college transcript? I think BC was okay with having, bringing it back, but they're like, well, we want to make sure the military science courses are in fact academically rigorous enough to show up on our, our transcripts, our official transcripts. Um, I remember the following year, I was still stationed in Newport and I ran into a group of, of, of ROTC students. And one of them said, oh, there's a guy here from Boston College. I said, well, that can't be because Boston College doesn't have ROTC. They got it the year after I graduated. Ah, oh, typical. Yeah. And and some kids are on scholarships. Some kids are not. Some kids are on, you know, they out of the four years, they might do a two-year scholarship. Um, some do a three-year, some do a four-year scholarship. Um, but I think after the second year, sometime during the second or third year, that's when you have to commit. Uh, you, you know, you've taken the money and you're committing. Um, so suddenly in your senior year, you decide, I don't want to do this. Uh, you've got to write a big check back or, you know, as we say, you're going to the fleet. Um, you are going as an enlisted man to pay back your, the debt. Wow. And when you first um, qualified, where, where did you go to? Did you go to Virginia or where, where was your first posting? Um, officer candidate school was in Newport along with some follow-on schools. Um, I had another follow-on school in uh, Dam Neck, Virginia, which is the Virginia beach area. And then after that, I was assigned to the USS Blakely, which is a frigate in Charleston, South Carolina. So I served there for three years. And did you get to travel much or is it mainly through the territorial waters? For that ship, it was mainly through the territorial waters. It was up and down the East Coast. Um, we used to joke that we're doing a, a very good impersonation of a retired person because every winter we did Coast Guard law enforcement operations in the Caribbean looking for drug smugglers. Oh, uh, I'll say. Which was actually, for, for if you're a ship driver, if you're a ship handler, it was a great experience um, because the Coast Guard's paying for everything. Um, this is probably going too far down a, a rabbit hole, but the Coast Guard cannot do domestic law enforcement. Right. Or the military, rather, cannot do domestic right. law enforcement. So we would have Coast Guard embarked. We, we have the, the real deep water, blue water capability. So we would bring them out with us. Um, down into international waters and, and track drug smugglers. So we got a couple of big busts, wow. uh, which was always exciting. So so let me get this right then. So as part of the ship's company, you would have US Coast Guard attached to the vessel? Not normally. Right. You would have maybe um, three or four guys. Uh, they would be the, the interdiction team. Right, yes. 
So they would actually do the boarding. They're, they are domestic law enforcement in the United States. And if you're in international waters, if the ship is foreign flagged, um, we would have to get what's called a statement of no objection from the host country before we did anything um, in, in terms of an interdiction on the, on the high seas. Wow. And what, and what year was this? So I was on that ship from 2000, uh, 1987 until 1990. And what? then after that, I, was, I, uh, I went to uh, Virginia, uh, Naval Amphibious Base Little Creek, Virginia, which is, I think, physically in Virginia Beach, but it straddles between Norfolk and Virginia Beach. Uh, it's a, it, as the name implies, it's a lot of large amphibious ships, SEAL Team 2 and 6 are there, Sawcraft Unit 2, EOD groups, um, beach masters, uh, amphibious construction battalions, things like that. Anything that's really going to hit the beach is at that base. Um, and I had the best title I ever had. I was Boat Group Commander. Boat Group Commander. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. Uh, what, what I was basically, I was officer in charge of a group of four landing craft. And these are the um, fairly large, but... A, if I remember correctly, 130 foot long, 40 foot wide, or maybe 140 foot long, 30 foot wide. But they would, they, at the time, they could carry a, a couple hundred fully loaded troops or three M60 tanks. Wow. Um, and as we learned, it could carry one M1 Abrams tank um, because that thing is a beast compared to the old. Our former main battle tank was M60. And with um, reactive armor on it, I think it weighed in at about 60, 70, 60 tons or so. And our max capacity was 200 tons. So you had three of those things on board, and you were deep in the water. You were squatting in the water. Um, you were very happy to get those things off your deck. I bet. And and when, I mean, rehearse or practice or whatever you want to call it, would that be done locally or would you travel? We would do both. Um, we'd go down to North Carolina, pick up the Marines. They have a, yeah, a training beach down there. Um, but in the Persian Gulf, we would do, we landed in um, Oman, uh, a couple of different places we do exercises. And fortunately, it did not have to do a live amphibious landing. But So what is the range of the vessel itself, though? Because it's a Class one, a class A certified vessel, so it's actually an open open ocean vessel. I would not want to be on the open ocean by myself. It's a flat-bottom boat. Yeah. Um, it's it's range is a couple hundred miles. You know, it's all fuel dependent. Yeah, sure. And, I, and, I and these, are, these are old air, uh, old craft, too. I mean, these, these are from the 60s. So how would they how would they transport them? I'm being nosy here, but how would they transport them to the Persian Gulf? On the in the well deck of an amphibious ship. So there's certain classes of amphibious ships: um, LPDs, LHAs, um, LSDs. Um, so I started, I transited to the Gulf on board the USS Portland, which was an LSD uh, 37. Uh, I did some time on LPD one, the USS Raleigh. By the way, all the ships I'll, I'll mention today are now been decommissioned. I think they've been turned into razor blades. We're probably <laughs> shaving with them. Um, and these these ships, they have ballast tanks in the stern area, uh, in the aft areas, and they literally flood the tanks. The, the stern of the ship squats in the water. You sail in. They blow the water out of the tanks, and the ship rises back out of it, and you end up being on a wooden deck. Um, it's, it's not exactly the most... It looks pretty serene when you're looking at it from a distance when the landing craft sails into the to the well deck. But in the moment, it's a pretty violent you rock and roll. Yeah, I bet. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's always good once that you can feel the ship rising and you you hit sort of solid. Uh, we call them batter boards on the side of the ships. And they're huge planks of wood. Uh, they're probably about a foot wide. Um, and you, you can see those things snap if you're if your landing craft hits them too hard. And, you know, lines snap because of the strain that, that's put on them. So. It's a pretty interesting evolution. Oh, but it is. And how many how many of the landing craft could they fit into one of these amphibious 
it depends on the class of ships. LHAs could do, I think, four, two or four. Um, LPDs could probably do one or two. LSDs can do two. Um, the, the difference between LSDs and LPDs, LPDs, the P is personnel. It, it's designed to carry a lot more troops than the LSD. LSD is more well-deck, less troops. Right. LPDs are um, more troops, less well-deck. But you, you're stretching my memory, Paul. I, uh, Sorry, mate. But I knew it, at a time I could just drill these statistics off to you. But it's interesting. I mean, this is this is what what we're doing today. As I said earlier on, this is about social history. And when you know we're long gone, and so, someone's listening to this, hopefully it will make sense to them. And because it's that, what did you do in the war moment? And sure. I I never asked. I've said this a number of times on here. I never asked my grandfathers what they did during the war. And I want to make it this accessible to people, our families, to listen to this and go, oh, you never guess what Patrick did. And because I didn't know what you what you did. I knew that you were in the Navy and I knew that you're a you're a lawyer, but I didn't know what you actually did. And it's and it's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's kind of it, in hindsight, it's really amazing. Um, but in the moment you think, oh, I've just got to go to work. Yeah, because we take we take things for granted. It's when we get later on in life that you realise that it's, you can't take these things for, for granted. Well, there's people, everyone um, has a story. I mean, you ask my mother. She immigrated to London from rural Ireland at the age of about sixteen, and she lived in Kensington Palace Gardens. She did, and yeah, and there was a book that came out a couple years ago called The London Cage, and it was this expose of a you know a, a secret interrogation center for high level Nazis. And I remember my mother talking about that because it was across the street from where she worked. And she and the other girls would walk by. And of course, the guards are at the fence line. They see a couple good looking young girls. Any let's let's face it, anybody in the military sees any woman walk by, they're gonna <laughs> chat them, they're gonna chat them up. And uh they're like, Oh, what do you do here? Oh, this is a big interrogation center for high-level Nazis, and there's a tunnel in between the buildings, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was just laughing when the book came out. It was because it bit was billed as an expose. And I'm like, I don't I I think if my mother is talking about it, I don't think it was a well-kept secret. Well, and you know, that's part of where the double-cross system was formed. So the XX, so the SOE, the XX, and the double-cross, that's, so the Kensington Palace Gardens, where they'd take all the spies and they, they would interrogate them there. Mm -hmm. And if they told the truth, they may not get executed. If they lied and got found out, they'd be taken to Wormwood Scrubs where they'd be executed, where they were being held. But I still go to Kensington Palace Gardens at least once a month. I've got a client who's who lives there, and if you, when you come over, I don't know if you've ever been, but it, I've never been. When you come over, I will take you to Kensington Palace Gardens to show you love that. where your mum we worked. I've never been to King. I should correct myself. I've never been to Kensington Palace Gardens. Um, the last time I was in the UK, I think uh, I was talking with your brother Glenn. Um, unfortunately. He, he couldn't make it. We were going to go to 10 Downing Street and get our oh. picture by the front door. Yeah, yeah. So put that on your list as well, please. Yeah, no, um, that's that's. That, but my we can do my that. brother Brian was recently in the UK and he he went to Kensington Palace Gardens. Was nice enough to get a picture of the building. It's now, I believe, the um, the residence for the embassy, the ambassador from Dubai. Yeah, there's, I mean, you've got down there. You've got the Russian embassy at one end, and you've got the Israeli embassy at the other end. Plus all the other embassies in in between Norwegian have got uh, an embassy yeah. there, and it's uh, Roman Abramovich who is a, a Russian oligarch. We've we've stopped all his money going out to him now. He's got a property there, and there are a number of very very wealthy individuals. But it's a fantastic place. All the all the street lights 
look like they're from a, a Victorian age, and it's just and it's quiet. You can you can go up there. Yeah. You, can, you can go up on foot, um, and if you've got someone to visit, you can go and drive through there. But it is a great well, place. My my brother did ask you, hey, is it okay to take photographs? And the two cops just on the corner, like, yeah, sure. Why? Why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Um, and it's funny. My mom worked for. She always said she worked for a Spanish Duchess, the Duchess of Marchese, which sounded when you're a kid, it's very exotic. It was just a, you know, you have the heir and the spare. Uh, she was part of the Spanish nobility, and she really didn't have a role. She married a. Uh, I did the research for my mom. She married a um, British shipping magnate. Um, and my sister, my mother's name is Maria. My sister's name is Maria. People assume that she's named after my mom. She's actually named after one of the daughters, Maria Elena, right. of the Duchess of Marchese. Isn't that funny? Because my, my grandmother, she um, was in service. I mean, my grandmother would be a hundred and four now i want to this say is betty yeah yeah betty so yeah, yeah. and yeah. and she was in service and another naval one of our naval um heroes lord nelson well my grandmother worked for the hamilton family and because the ha lady hamilton was the lady that was having a relationship with horatio nelson and so my grandmother was the housekeeper for them out in henley upon thames or near henley upon thames how you know my my dad remembers that the day of the coronation in 1953 he got his teeth knocked out playing cricket and this is this is the bizarre thing you and i are closer in age you're my dad's first cousin but we're closer in age than you are to my dad you know so we've got more yeah. socially in com in common but I, I but i find like i say the the history but when you come over I will take you to Downing Street and to parliament oh, yeah, and, and up to uh, Kensington and Palace and i i did look up uh, there's a um, in law, I looked up what's called the table of consanguinity because the concept of first cousin, second cousin, first cousin once removed always is a strange thing. Yes, we are we are actually first cousins once removed. Right. Okay. First cousins once yeah. removed. That's where we are. Yeah. It's, I, I, that's so lawyer. You're <laughs> yeah. Well, things like that bother me, and I, maybe that's why I was good at being a lawyer. I it, it just sort of it sticks in me, and I was like, I have to figure this out. Yeah. No, that, that's brilliant. So you've you've Traveled with the uh, U.S. Navy. What rank were you when you left? Commander. Commander. Okay. Yeah. Um, I jokingly once told I, I used to be the flag aide for an admiral, and um, when I got promoted to commander, he was congratulating me, and I said, "You know, I'm probably three pay grades higher than I should be." And he thought about it, and he looked. He kind of looked at me. He goes, "Oh, I'm already seven pay grades higher than I should be." <laughs> so, um, when you start out, when you you, you know. The commanding officers of my ships were commanders. Right. Um, and you're like, these guys are old. You know, they're so senior. And um, and then you realize sort of commander is where um, it's relatively easy to rise to the rank, I think, rank of commander. Um, and there's lots of roles for commanders. It's senior enough. Um, and then the, you make that break between commander and captain and then captain to admiral. Um, but my time, my time was up. Um, I decided when I joined the State Department, I wasn't. I was going to retire from the reserves and then um, make a clean break. I didn't want to join the Department of State, and then suddenly get a recall notice um, to have to, you know, the Navy. I don't. I didn't want the Navy to be able to reach back and grab me. <laughs> yes, and send you out somewhere that's not quite so nice. Um, any regrets of uh, of leaving the the Navy? No. Um, it's funny. I've met people who I, that's like their the pinnacle of their life. They always look back on it. Why did I leave? They always have that regret. Um, and think, do you not remember the, you know, getting up at 
3.30 in the morning to stay in the Rev Watch or, you know, 11.30 at night to stay in the Mid Watch and putting a, what felt like a brick around your neck, which is a pair of binoculars. You wear a pair of binoculars for four hours around your neck and they're heavy. They're not these, you know, lightweight binoculars you have today. These are relics of World War II that we we were stuck with. And um, the weather's foul. Um, the, you, when you close the doors to the bridge, especially when the ship gets a little bit older. My first ship was probably 20 years old uh, when I joined it. Um, there's a lot of smells, yeah, <laughs> a lot of hydraulic fluid, human produced smells. Um, and you, you start closing the hatches up on a bad day, a bad weather day, and it gets odiferous on the bridge. Odiferous, um, yeah. I, I actually once threw a guy off the bridge for farting too much. Did you? <laughs> yeah, you kept apologizing. I'm like, man, you got to, you're, you're now the fool yeah. lookout. Sorry, man, you're rotating out. This is killing us. So, uh, I, I will say, uh, the Guys that I served with, and at the time, on a, at least on combatants, it was all men. Um, really fast, the vast majority, stellar individuals, enlisted and officers. You know, there's a, there's a few loose screws, yeah. obviously. Um, but these guys were fascinating. I really enjoyed um, talking with these guys. And I can't say enough about the senior listed ranks, the chief petty officers. Those guys, if, if you're in with them, you you will succeed. They will take you under their wing. They'll train you how to be an officer. Yeah, but equally, if, if you don't take them under your wing or if you don't work with them and they don't take you under their wing, they could be the end of your career quite quickly as well. They can make it a lot more difficult than it should be or yeah. that it could be. Yeah, absolutely. When you Have you seen Greyhound, the Tom Hanks movie? Yeah, and actually I, I, um, I saw that in Iceland with two historians. Um, and I'll, after that we wrap up, I'll give you a reference for another police officer to, to yeah, interview cool. an Icelandic police officer who's actually a historian. He's written a few books on Iceland and World War II. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Fascinating story. Um, and then we had a historian that was at the base. He worked in our public affairs officer. And both of these guys have written books. They both do, you know, lectures and stuff. And I watched Greyhound with these guys. And I swear they took the joy out of it because at one point, Tom Hanks lifts up one of the shipboard phones, um, to call, I don't know if he's calling the injury room or whomever. And one guy goes, oh, that's wrong. I said, what do you mean? He goes, they didn't introduce that model of ship phone until oh. 1947. <laughs> like, Can you just let me enjoy the movie? Um, <laughs> I, I will say it was a very good movie. Um, it was a taut thriller, I think is how they would say it. Although his executive officer is one of your guys. He's um, he's a Brit. Um, the little guy that played his XO uh, is a British actor. Um but you got the sense of how cold it is up in the North Atlantic. Oh, yeah. Um, it is not a pleasant place. I've sailed the, up to Canada, um, up to Halifax in August. And let me just say, in the fire room, we, we were a 1,200-pound steamship, 1,200-pound superheated steam, my first ship. Um, always hot as hell down in the fire room, the engine room. Um, in August, the guys were wearing foul weather jackets in the fire room. That's how cold the ambient air temperature is in August. Wow. Um, if you do man overboard drills, you know, in the Caribbean, you know, your biggest threat is a shark. Uh, up in the, once you get past sort of Cape Cod, um, you're, you're, you've got to worry about exposure. I mean, up in the Canadian waters, your life expectancy is measured in minutes. If you don't get you out of the, if we don't get you out of the water. That's not good. Well, yeah, I, I found that it was a captivating movie. I mean, it really was. And the, you could feel the suspense, couldn't you, as they sailed across the Atlantic, going to Northern Ireland and being tracked by the subs. It was just, oh, it was incredible. And you can only imagine, if I was to join, if I had my time again, if I was to join the the, the services, I'm not sure that the Navy would, would have been the one, certainly at that time, because being a pilot was pretty 
pretty grim. You only had a yep. very short life expectancy, but the amount of vessels that were, were sunk doing that North Atlantic convoy was unbelievable. Well, I was able to visit Pearl Harbor, and there's a submarine memorial, and there's pillars. Um, and you go over and you read the plaque on each pillar about submarines. These are submarines that were lost in the Pacific during World War II. And you realize that you're looking at the date they were sunk, they were lost. And they, we were losing at one point a submarine a week. Mm. Now, and, you know, they were getting extra pay. A lot of guys want to join the sub force because they're getting this submarine pay. And um, But your, your odds at one point during the war were not that good. No. Yeah. And, and back in the day, ships were... I mean, the architecture of a naval of a warship was it was engines and guns. It was weapon systems and engines. That was it. Where you slept was an afterthought. Yeah. Um, and it was just until I think the 80s when they brought the Spruance class destroyer online, they actually really had a thought about habitability and, you know, um, making uh, creature comforts on board the ship for the, the guys that have to live on board the ship. So now, you know, we're, we're competing for the same. Uh, talent pool as everybody else, uh, not just within the military, but also within civilian jobs. So you've got to, you're going to bring somebody into the Navy, especially on surface ships, you have to make, make them realize it's not that bad. You can watch all the World War II movies, but it's not like that anymore. No. We've got air conditioning, we've got internet. It's okay. That's really, that's funny because you forget that it, they are, I mean, I don't know, is it the, the, the George Washington, which is the, the super, a huge, huge vessel. And it's a small city. Yeah, with with the air wing on board, uh, embarked on board, I think you're looking at 5,000 people. That's incredible. Yeah, it's it, when you go on board a carrier, and I've been on board for meetings, um, if you don't have somebody bringing you to where you're going for the meeting, um, you, you're lost in seconds. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's just these, these things are cavernous. Did you, when you came to London, did you go to HMS Belfast? Did you see Bel HMS Belfast? No, we, um, the first time I went to the UK, was actually with my mom. I was in law school and we actually went for your grandmother's 50th, uh, oh, and yes. 50th. yes, of and, course uh, she did. Yeah. And it's amazing when you talk to people about, oh, it's the first time I met, you know, uncles, yeah. cousins. Yeah. Never, I'd never been to the UK before. Um, fascinating, uh, to be there with somebody who had been there in world war two. Mm. Um, so we did, I did some touring with her. We did the tourist thing. Um, and then I was over there with my wife um, and the kids when I was stationed in Iceland. We took a trip over. Well, when you were over next, as I say, we'll meet up. But Belfast is was the first battle cruiser to lay fire at uh, the Normandy landings. And they retired it after the Korean War, and it now sits opposite the Tower of London on the Thames. It's yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, alongside the USS Constitution in downtown Boston is the – going to say the USS Cassin Young. It's an old Fran-class destroyer that served in World War II. And at, at one time in reserves, I did reserve duty. Uh, we assisted the USS Constitution. I was in a, a, a fleet training group unit. We did a lot of damage control training. Yeah. Uh, so when the USS Constitution was gearing up to do its sail uh, for the first time in God knows how long, um, I had a very entrepreneurial commanding officer of my reserve unit he contacted the ship CEO and said, you're probably going to be all hands on deck for the sale. How about if we do your damage control? We maintain the fire, fire control systems, you know, et cetera. So we started drilling on board the USS Constitution. And we were able to sail, under sail on the Constitution, which was pretty cool. Uh, cool. But across from the Constitution is the Cass and Young. So we, we wandered over there and took a tour. And they have volunteers, you know, ex-job ex guys. Um, 
and we walked on board and one of my colleagues said, you know, this smells like a Navy ship. It's mm -hmm. a very distinctive smell. And I, the guy, the old bosun mate was just, oh, he was over the moon with that comment because he just wants the ship to be as authentic as possible. Yeah. Um, and they, there's, you know, like, as I said, there are certain distinctive smells and sights and sounds on, on naval vessels. Um, yeah, the whole naval gunfire support for D-Day is a fascinating story in and of itself. Um, so, yeah, I, I just remember one of the cruisers, it, it was very limited naval gunfire support, obviously, because you got the the troops on the beach. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. But it was, it was danger close. And oh, they yeah. would just ride the gun line. They were almost uh, grounding themselves. They were so close to the shore. And and because our Uncle Jack was, I don't know if I, if you know this or if I've, I've said it before, but he was in the Metropolitan Police and then yeah. he joined the Grenadier Guards and he went out to Normandy and then just he was a POW, I think, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, and just before his hundredth birthday, they gave him um, the French government recognised all the Normandy veterans and, and maybe and he, and he sadly passed away in Cork a couple of years later. Um, but yeah, there's there's amazing people. And we were talking about Don Shepherd earlier, and he's you know he's 103 this this year on on May the fourth, and he he broke his pelvis, and he was in hospital for a month, and he come out and he's doing physio at home at the moment. I mean that that just shows the measure of the man that he's still fighting on after all all, all these years. When you uh, became a lawyer. What sort of stuff did you get involved in as a, as a lawyer? Well, I was very fortunate. Um, when I was in law school, uh, I was able to get a job as an intern with the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department. So it's a law enforcement agency in Boston. Um, Suffolk County is Boston and two or three other surrounding cities. And um, they run the, the local jail and the, the House of Correction. So it's a lower level prison. And um, I was the summer intern that never left. I was hired for the summer. Um, we were ready to go back to school and I went to my boss and said, Hey, am I still working here? And she goes, no one's told me any different. So I continue to work. Um, and I left 11 years later as the assistant general counsel. Um, so I, I did inmate legal services. Uh, so I worked behind the wall for seven years, um, dealing with inmates. I ended up becoming the director of legal services and fascinating group of individuals, inmates. Um, they are all the shame of it is. I've met some very intelligent individuals. Oh yeah. And, but for, you know, some bad decisions, uh, had they, that moment in life, they could have gone left or right. And they went left and had they just gone right. Uh, you know, what's the joke? You use your, um, intellect for the forces of good and not the forces of evil. You know, you meet guys that are, we, we would call it life on the installment plan. Uh, they do six months or a year. They get out for a couple months, screw up, come back in, do another six months or a year. They were just rotating in, um, in and out. So I did inmate legal services for seven years, uh, facilitating post-conviction remedies, you know, everything. It was, it was like running a general legal services office. Uh, wow. we, did, we helped them with tax returns, uh, family law matters, criminal matters. Um, and then I got tapped to be uh, to work with the general counsel's office. And I did that for the next uh, three or four years. And that was, I did workers' comp litigation, um, did some contract issue, public contract issues, uh, employee um discipline cases, uh, contract cases, um, is a good general legal background. And then in 2003, I jumped ship. I started my own practice right. with my wife who's also an attorney. Oh, wow. And, um, 
we did that for three years and then you know uncle sam invited me back on active duty invited in quotes yeah quotations uh it's it's a choice not a choice um and then i ended up closing down the i wasn't sure knowing i had only been going for a year but i had my own practice so you i and my wife did a separate area of law she did estate planning trust in estates um so i couldn't just dump everything on her um also she ended up she and the kids ended up coming over to iceland with me so we ended up closing down the practice i just sort of transferred my files to one of the other local attorneys and thought okay will i come back to law will i not come back to the law but you know as i said you know you could go left or right i ended up taking that turn and i ended up joining the diplomatic corps uh and one thing led to another so i i put the you know the law behind me but that but that's fascinating you know to go into the diplomatic corps and and to work in afghanistan what year were you in afghanistan uh 2019 2020 right so it, we were, it was just about the time it was all going to get handed back yeah uh, we left i got caught out i didn't do a full year because i was on my last r and r it's a very structured year um, so every 60 days or so, you've got to go on vacation right. for, you know, 20 plus days. Um, they don't care where you go. You're just going to leave Afghanistan. And, you know, when your wife, when you're married with a wife and kids back home, you're going to go back home by colleagues that were not married or encumbered with family. They were taking these amazing vacations yeah, to you know, Thailand or Vietnam or Europe or wherever. Very jealous of those guys. Um, and you're getting a little extra bump in pay, too, for the danger pay and the hardship pay. Um, but in my last R&R, that was when COVID was descending. And uh, I remember we, we would not go to the civilian air terminal at the um, Karzai International Airport. We would actually be heloed over to a secure camp next to the airport that the State Department had. We would spend the night in a, a, a CHU, containerized housing unit, you know, basically a Connex box, a shipping container. Yeah. Um, and then you'd be, you get in an armored van and you'd go across the tarmac to your airplane. So you'd enter the airplane um, from the side door up the stairs, like the baggage handlers. And we were on the, we were on the van. Oh, I should back up a little bit. Um, I was due to leave actually the following week. And my boss came to me after a morning meeting and said, Hey, when are you going on R and R? I said, Oh, I'm doing about 10 days. He goes, you might want to see if you can move that up earlier. I'm not sure you're going to be able to get out of here in 10 days. So there's a whole world going on in the background that I was not mm -hmm. aware of. So I called down to our transportation office or emailed them actually. And, um, I said, Hey, I'm just investigating, you know, is it possible to get a little bit earlier? 20 minutes later, they emailed back and said, okay, you got the 1620 Hilo over to Camp Alvarado and you're on tomorrow morning's flight, um, Turkish air to Istanbul onto Boston. I was like, Oh, wow. Um, that was quick. Um, so it was, I didn't realize they were trying to push people out because they saw the sort of COVID curtain falling. Yeah. And they realized that if it is as bad as they say it is, we don't have the medical facilities to handle this. And our medical backup, we had a very small clinic at the embassy on the embassy compound. Our medical, if, if you broke a leg, you were going to be um, medevac to Bagram Air Force Base. And Bagram was basically saying, uh, don't look at us, dude. We're we're all out as well. So you cannot count on us. So the, if you had a cough or a sniffle in the past at, at the, the U.S. Embassy, if you were on the if, if they had a medical record of you, they were inviting you to go on R&R &R a little earlier or to medevac out. And they were just signing everything. They were like, you're gone, you're gone. And I didn't realize that was happening in the background. They were trying to shed numbers, shed personnel. So I got out. Um, it was just before St. Patrick's Day in 2020. But on the van ride over to the plane, my coworker shows me the phone and um, 
Emirates had announced that uh, Emirates and Turkish Air had announced that they were ceasing operations at the into Kabul as of like the Saturday, the following Saturday. This is a Wednesday or Thursday morning. So it was like the last plane out of Saigon. Wow, uh, a little bit. Uh, and we have all these rules about Fly America and U U.S. flag carriers and whatever plane lands in the U.S. has to be either a U.S. flag carrier or have a co-chair agreement with a foreign carrier. Yeah. All that, you know, you could get waivers for that. And so I was able to land because previously I'd landed at uh, Istanbul International Airport and I can see the Turkish air flight going to Boston. I can't get on it because there's no code chair. I've got to fly Lufthansa to Frankfurt and then connect Lufthansa back to Boston. Uh, so they just elongated my my travel day by about 15 hours. So I was able to walk off one plane two hours, three hours later, I was on another plane. So I left on the 19th or 20th of March, and uh, I think I arrived home the same day, which to me is kind of a mind bend Yeah, uh, that you can leave Afghanistan and you know, I'm back home in Boston the same day. It's incredible. Which is amazing. Uh, and then I wasn't able to go back. So we actually teleworked for the last couple months. Right. Uh, but they had, I worked in public affairs. I was a deputy spokesperson. Um, so a lot of our work ended up being the care and feeding of our local staff, trying to make sure those guys are taken care of, uh, making sure they have the tools and equipment they needed. We still had to sort of feed the beast. We yeah. still have to produce our daily news summaries and make sure that leadership is aware of what's happening on the uh, both traditional media, social media, et cetera. So we have to monitor all that stuff and um, make sure the embassy's leadership and State Department leadership is aware of what's being said. In, in and around Afghanistan. Oh, it's a, it's a great shame when you look at the for hundreds of years, there's always been conflict conflicts in Afghanistan. And, and what I've, I've got friends who have uh, been out there in, in battle and the people that have died. And it's, and now I was just reading a, a, a paper that the Taliban are getting even stricter with uh, female members of, yeah, I'm actually surprised it took them this long the way they behave. Um, and I might as well jump in with a lawyerly disclaimer that the views that I express on this podcast are my own, entirely my own. Oh, yeah. The views of the U.S. government. Yeah, no, no, no. Absolutely. I'm retired, happily retired. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that on the best of days in Afghanistan, um, it was challenging. Yeah. Um, there is a cadre of Afghans who are ready to sort of take the mantle of responsibility. Um, there's certainly a group that are very anti-American, not just the Taliban. Um, but then there's that soft middle in between that just want to be left alone, do their thing. Yeah. Um, and there's a huge, it was enough of a groundswell to sort of push the Taliban out. Um, there was not enough of a brain trust in Afghanistan to sort of take all those jobs that are necessary to make the trains run on time, so to speak, um, to be the you know, the, the local mayors, the municipal works director uh, to sort of make a habitable society. I mean, Kabul does not have a, a fully functioning sewage system. And, and think about that, a, a major capital city. That's incredible. Um, and you, when you flush, you're never sure where that's going to go. Mm -hmm. um, so they are backwards uh, in a number of areas. Um, but I've met some extraordinarily capable Afghans who, but for overwhelming adverse circumstances, would be fantastic in leadership positions in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, and I always lament, you know, when you meet these Afghan expats and, you know, they don't want to be a baggage. I've met them at Logan Airport, checking me in at the, for flights, and they don't really want to be at Logan Airport living in Boston. They want to be, they love Afghanistan. Yeah, um, they do. And shockingly, when you look at the numbers of Taliban, there's not that many. 
No. I think it's less than, you know, active fighters is maybe 80,000, 80, 90,000. I may have my numbers wrong, but um, that kind of force, they, they control by fear. I mean, they are, they're a brutal group. Yeah. They are. Um, I had guys uh, that worked for me Had one guy that was stopped and arrested twice by the Afghans, you know, when they, when they had control of Afghanistan the last time, uh, once because he, sh- he rolled into a checkpoint in his car and he was playing music on his car radio and he was totally forgot he had music on that's forbidden. Um, and they sent him to a re-education camp, uh, where you listen to it, a mom preach day in and day out until they kick you out. And the other time, um, he's a great guy. He's a bit of a bodybuilder boxer. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to use the term metrosexual, but I mean, his hair was always just incredibly perfect. Uh, in his beard, um, what's that black color, Vanta black, that deep, deep black color. I mean, just this amazing beard, um, handsome, handsome guy, big guy. And he takes care of his, his physical form and his grooming. He's this guy's on top of it. Tal, and he had, I think he had trimmed his beard. Oh no. Taliban saw that back to the re-education camp, which he escaped from. They're so loosey goosey about things. He just was, he was able to get free and they didn't know who he was. And so they're so unsophisticated in the way that they carry out their business. And I just, I, the, the public at large, like you say, there'll be the middle ground that just want an easy life. And you'll have the, the, those who want to fight against and those who don't like the Americans, the British, and anyone else who's interfered. We haven't interfered. We've gone in to try and help. That's the, that's the thing. Um, I, I think the U.S. foreign policy, believe it or not, doesn't really change administration to administration. Um, there's a, you know, the, every new president comes in with some grand ideas, some grand initiatives. But the day-to-day retail diplomacy uh, that we undertake is really, uh, it, I always sum it up as, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. If we can foster democratic principles and economic opportunity in different countries, those two things, if you can get the population invested in those two things, um, suddenly you're being upset about, they have that, why don't I have that? I will fight them. Or they're from a different ethnic group. They're not this person, they're that person. We're, we've been at war forever. If you've got a job to go to every day, so I'm like, well, I got to get to work. I'll, I'll worry about them after work. Yeah. And it becomes less and less of an urgency. You're, you're taking care of you and yours. Um, and, and that's really overall what we, what we try and do. Um, we are, we are not empire building. No, uh, no, no, not at all. What, what, what's your view on the, um, Ukrainian issue at the moment? I mean, this go we're going off piece slightly, but obviously the, um, Putin has announced that he's coming out of the accord with the Americans over the nuclear yes. weapons and, What's, what's the general pulse over in, in the States at the moment around that? There's a lot of support, um, you know, emotional support for what the Ukrainians are going through. The, the Russians are still the the boogeyman. They're, mm. they're still the bear. Um, they, uh, I'm hesitant to say enemy, but they are certainly our adversary in the world uh, and, and trying to get influence around the world. And as an American, we also don't like people getting bullied or picked on. I mean, it just really goes against our cuts against our grain. Mm. Um, now, this is typical behavior for Russians. A lot of the analysts, you know, you could see this coming with NATO expansion uh, in the 90s and the, in the 2000s, uh, bringing in the former Soviet bloc countries into the NATO fold. Russia does not like that. There's only so many ways, you know, a land army can get to Russia. And one of them is across Ukraine. And so the whole purpose of 
you know, the, the Warsaw Pact was to keep those buffers between the motherland and, um, and Russia. And, and so NATO couldn't just easily roll over. Um, I, I think it's faulty logic on the part of the Russians. If they fear NATO invading, nobody wants to invade Russia. No. I mean, that's how, not how battles are fought nowadays. It's, it's all done economically. Um, so, but I, but their mindset is completely different than our mindset. We could easily peacefully coexist, but that's not the Russian way. And I think Putin has this, you know, he's a lion in winter. He's only got so many days left. And I think he wants to like every czar before him, he wants to expand the empire and he wants to regain these territories and, you know, the realities be damned. Yeah. So, um, as far as the average U S citizen, I, I don't think their depth of knowledge goes too deep. Also, their memories don't go particularly deep. I mean, um, Hunter Biden is uh, in the news always for his financial alleged financial shenanigans and his deal with uh, the Ukrainian oil companies and things. And, you know, a year or two ago, Ukraine's were these corrupt, you know, despots. Uh, but now there are Democratic allies. Mm. Um, so the enemy of our enemy is our friend, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? Because you're quite right. There's been some adverse publicity around a number of individuals and their relationships over there. The, the problem we have here in the UK is that the if that falls, if the Ukraine falls, that's part of that barrier has gone and they're one step closer to us as, as a... But, like, right. you know, with, with nuclear weapons or whatever they've got available to them. Um, yeah, if you back Russia into a corner, that's the big question. Yeah. Like, what do they got left? They're, they're not succeeding with, you know, conventional land forces. And if you push them too much, and if you're a neighbor of Ukraine, if Ukraine falls, what do you, you know, Moldova's next. Yeah, exactly. You know, suddenly you're, it's, it's a domino effect and the Warsaw Pact gets reconstituted involuntarily. Yeah. Uh, and then what's NATO going to do? You know, is, is someone going to invoke Article 5 of the NATO Charter? I, I It's a world, uh, a future world that I, I'm hesitant to think about. You've you've done a number of funny things. Let's get on to the funny things that you've done. You, you've dropped a torpedo. I mean, what, oh, yeah. what, what was that? How did you, how do you drop a torpedo? Um, it's easier than you think. Um, so on my first ship, uh, we had this preventive maintenance system. <clears throat> so no matter what, you're always checking your gear to make sure it works, firefighting gear, weapon systems. And, and part of it was, you know, you had to pull a torpedo out of the tube and do a electron, you know, you do a check on it to make sure the systems are working correctly. And it, it slides out of the tube on a, on a loading rail and the loading rail, it's very low tech stuff. Um, it's just like you know a, a railed system that clips onto the end of the torpedo tube you open the tor the flask the air flask that's at the end of the torpedo tube that blows the torpedo out of the tube you take that out and you get some um strapping and you pull the torpedo out onto the loading rails <clears throat> unfortunately the loading rail was not quite affixed to the torpedo tube as it should have been and it one of the fixing points just sort of like fell it it, it wasn't connected properly so the tilting the loading rail tilted to the left because uh, I remember this vividly, the torpedo then plunk plunk fell, falls out, hits the hits the deck, starts to roll, and my torpedo man's mate literally put his foot on the torpedo to stop it rolling. And it was not a it was not a war shot. It's not a live shot. It was a training round. Thank right. God. But it still has the problem with these Mark forty six torpedoes. It still has the fuel in it, and it's auto auto two fuel, I think, and it's a self oxidizing fuel, highly toxic fuel to breathe. So if that cracked, if the fuel cell cracked. You know, we, we were in a closed torpedo room. Uh, this is an enclosed uh, magazine. Uh, the tubes were fixed on this particular ship. They weren't out on the deck. Yeah, we'd be screwed. Uh, and if we were out on the deck, it might have just rolled overboard. Yeah. Uh, that's hard That's hard to explain, Paul. Yeah, I can uh, imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, that, that would not be good for anyone's career. Um, 
so the, the funny thing is uh i had a ceo at the time who was not known for like walking around the ship too often but um we we had that oh you know crap moment and um we fixed the loading rail uh we got the straps under the torpedo got it loaded back into the the, the tube um did our diagnostics on it it was fine um i gave my direction to my chief petty officer we get back to port we're going into a maintenance period we have to offload the weapons this is the first thing that gets offloaded we send it back and make sure that we send a little tag on it saying you might want to check this torpedo so just as we closed up the torpedo tube my captain walks in he had this very distinctive high-pitched voice he's like Hey, what's going on in here? <laughs> um, we all turn. And I have to tell you, enlisted guys really have no use for officers until moments like this. So I had three guys turn and just look right at me. He's like, just doing a prevent maintenance check, sir. Checking everything out. Looks good. He goes, okay, good. Carry on. <laughs> um, so that, that was one of those, you know, like I said, oh, crap moments. Um, oh, yeah. You, you goof around a lot. Um, I don't know if you're big into the old war movies, but um, Mr. Roberts uh with henry fonda jack lemon um probably one of the most accurate portrayals of a navy uh, movie really? ever um just the shenanigans the idiocy that goes on you're bored at sea sometimes oh yeah i can imagine when you when you're on a long haul and uh there's nothing else to do you you horse around yeah uh, you especially when you hit ports too you know that, that expression you know spending money like a sailor in port um we've been delayed uh leaving ports because our guys have gone out i remember once in um Puerto Rico. Um, we're all at, we call it sea and anchor detail, all ready to get underway. And it's, a, it's kind of a, there's a bit of a pucker factor because you've got a man, um, lookouts, you've got radar navigation going, you've got visual navigation going. You don't want to hit anything on the way out because we were a single screw ship. We didn't have any um, bow thrusters. You know, it wasn't the most maneuverable ship in the world. Uh, not like these giant cruise ships that just sort of turn on the dimes. And um, we're all manned up. And I was the uh, down in CIC, Combat Information Center. I was the radar navigation officer. And we're not getting underway, not getting underway. And we're on these, you know, headsets. And I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know, sir. It's, you know, we're not moving. And then finally, the guys are leaving. He goes, I don't know. I see guys leaving the ship. I don't know what's going on. And uh, I go up to the bridge. It turns out our guys had been at one of the local gin joints the night before and tore it up and, and tore up this guy's uh, barbecue pits. And um whoever on the ship was able to negotiate a uh, compromise a, a, a suitable um resolution to not getting our guys arrested you know etc not getting law enforcement involved we had to make it we had to fabricate him new um grills so 55 gallon drums um cut in half welded you know legs uh tops on them so they're carting these things out to go to i think the name of the place was called papa joe's i still remember that Brilliant. um and so we were delayed about an hour until we got that stuff. And after that, my CEO was like, every port we go to, the morale, welfare, and recreation officer, which is a collateral duty, is going to have activities. Um, basically, I'm not going down because these guys are idiots. I'm going to at least be able to say we had activities for the entire ship. Whether you chose to you know, participate is up to you. But you know, I'm going to make sure that the ship, in terms of leadership, is covered. And we provided a, um, a good, clean outlet for their energy. That's pretty, I, I mean, you're talking about the movies, but I vividly remember watching some movies where you've got these, the shore patrol were the biggest guys that were on the on the vessel, and you know they went round in pairs. Is that what happens when you, when you? Yeah, um, it, it's. I was on shore patrol in Dubai, uh, but they wouldn't let us. The Dubai authorities uh, wouldn't let us like cruise around town, um, so they put us up in a hotel, gave us dinner, and we would go out if there was a call. Right. 
Um, and, and luckily, there's very few calls. I mean, it was just, it, it's pretty funny. It's just a drunk sailor crying in his beer because he misses his, his girl. Uh, you just get him back to the ship. It's, you know, no, no harm, no foul. Uh, but the Emiratis do not like uh, drunks in public. No. Um, there's, at the time, I don't know how it is now, but there was no such thing as a liquor license issued by the government. Anybody that could serve liquor served it at the pleasure of the emir. And, it, you know, what, what the emir giveth, the emir can take it away. Yeah. So if there were too many incidents, you know, you suddenly like, oh, the Hilton can no longer serve alcohol. And a stroke you of a pen. A, a stroke of a pen. Yeah, exactly. So um, I did shore patrol. One of the most interesting shore patrols I did was in Milford, Connecticut, which is on the Long Island Sound. Um, we did a port call up there, which was really amazing. We were up there for their like a founder's day. I think they were having their 350th anniversary of the town. And we got tapped to go up there and be the, you know, they requested, the, people do this all the time. They request Navy ships for certain events. And um, we got tapped to go. Nobody had ever heard of Milford, Connecticut. We actually looked at the Rand McNally roadmap that was in our coffee table in our wardroom to figure out where the hell is Milford? What chart do we need to get <laughs> to get to Milford, Connecticut? We could not uh, get to Pierside because it was too shallow. We drew, our draft was 26 feet. So we had to anchor out. And immediately, uh, you know, the town's leadership came out to do our little introduction, and um, they were on the ball. The you know the the local police chief, the the town, the mayor, the selectmen came out to sort of greet us, and we were unaware they were coming, and we had to sort of like do a little nice little event for them in our wardroom. And they said on Founders Day, you guys are all invited. Uh, we got you memberships to the yacht club for the time that you're here, which has a gym. Um, for the guys that are on watch on the day, on the Founders Day event, um, we're prepared to ship you out, I think it was 100 live lobsters and potatoes to do a lobster pick. Wow. And our supply corps officer was just like, well, I don't know if we can accept. My captain just put his hand on his arm and said, that would be great. Thanks so much. <laughs> um, and being a New Englander, I'm like telling the supply corps officer, don't murder these lobsters twice. I mean, you're looking at a few minutes in hot water. They're nice and red. Yes, yeah. it doesn't take long. Please don't kill these things again. You know, they don't need to die twice. Um, so yeah, and there was guys, it turned out that um, so small craft would come up. We had a we had a rig and accommodation ladder, a com ladder. And you know, pleasure cruisers would show up and they start talking to guys waiting for the the launch to come and ferry them in. And they're like, Hey, you want to come with us? We can take you. And like, okay. So they would pull alongside, drop off a few guys, they'd take them in. One guy. I think they were trying to marry this kid off to one of their daughters in the worst way. He was gone for about two days. <laughs> Said he would call back and say, I don't have watch tomorrow. Can I stay off the ship? We're like, sure, that's fine. Brilliant. Um, and I was on the, I was on the final night on shore patrol. I was cruising around with a Milford cop and it's Milford, Connecticut. It's not exactly a New York city, pretty quiet. And, uh, we told everybody the last launch leaves at, you know, midnight cinderella liberty is what we call it uh really it's 1 a.m one will leave at midnight he'll go out and then all the guys that missed it because we know sailors are not good at keeping time we'll come back and get those and um so he announced the cop announced on his car pa system that hey last launch is leaving last launch is leaving and we had guys coming out of the wood literally coming out of the woodwork on the the, the small craft would be up on um i don't know if they're called uh derricks you know they the, the v grooved wooden um holders that ships would be craned onto yep. in the winter, whatever. Uh, so there's a boat yard and these guys were coming out, pulling up their pants. <laughs> like what's going on back there? And, you know, 
some girl's like, you, you'll call me, Paul. You'll call yeah. me. That's, I'll call you. Don't worry. Yeah. And the guy's like, oh, it looks like he's got a relationship cooking. I said, yeah, but his name's not Paul. So I don't think he's going to be calling her. <laughs> so it was just one of those moments like this is a Navy moment that, you know, this is like your dad would talk about this stuff. Back yeah, in the yeah. Day. But it still goes on. Thank God for sailors. And and well, absolutely. And because the, the, the military is a melting pot for people, you know, it rep, it's representative of all types and none so as big as you know the US Navy because literally you've got landlocked individuals who've probably never seen the sea all of a sudden I was in training with guys that didn't know how to swim and never seen the ocean yeah there you go and they're going to be naval officers yeah it was an incredible experience uh, I mean I had traveled I mean my first trip I was two and a half I went back to Ireland yeah um, I was one of those kids growing up I had a passport and um, a lot of the neighborhood would they'd have a summer house on Cape Cod we did not have a summer house on Cape Cod, <laughs> but we were able to travel. We'd go to New, New Hampshire, Vermont, Canada, exotic Canada, where they had the metric system, which was amazing. Um, <laughs> and we'd go back to Ireland every couple of years, which was, as a kid, that was a fantastic yeah. opportunity. Um, so I felt like I had, I was pretty sophisticated as a 22-year-old. I had traveled, but it was really amazing to meet these um, these guys, these kids that had never, they, they they saw the poster, see the name, you know, join the Navy, see the see world. world. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, I'm getting out of, you know, um, he's Podunk, Alabama, and I'm joining the Navy. It's incredible, isn't it? And it but it is a place of opportunity. And there are people it, pro- probably there who uh, they've, they've made a full lifetime career of, of being in the, the U.S. Navy. Yeah, there's a turning point. I think once you're at about the 10-year point, um, let's say you've come in at 18, 18 or 19, you know, you're now, you're hitting 30. You've been in 10 years, you've made rank, you've made grade. Um, and that's kind of, same with the officers. You know, you've got to make a decision. Am I going to turn the corner here and go for 20 or longer? You know, where's my career at? And for a lot of guys, they really like what they do. I mean, it's a tough life. Getting underway oh, yeah. is not easy, especially when you start a family. Um, the guys, obviously, if you're not encumbered by a wife and kids, by a spouse and children, it's a whole lot easier. Um, I deployed to the Persian Gulf on, you know, one day's notice. I handed my car keys to my uh, my office mate and said, look after my car. Don't know when I'll be back. Um, I left 12 post-dated checks or pre-dated checks, I guess, uh, with my roommate and said, here's the rent. Don't know when I'll be back. Um, all for naught because I had two roommates um, and within two weeks, we were all deployed to the Persian Gulf. Wow. Uh, it was just, you were very agile back then. Um, I, I moved everything I owned fit in my car, my, my truck. Yeah. Was that for the first Persian Gulf War? For the first, yeah, that was PG one, yeah. first Persian Gulf. And it's funny, I lived on the beach. I lived right on the Chesapeake Bay, and um, we we sailed the landing craft out. Uh, and for your listeners that are familiar with Chesapeake Bay, there's the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, which is a amazing bit of architecture. You're on a bridge; it goes down under the water, and back up. And and where it goes underwater, those are the channels for the ships. And you're deep underwater. Wow. Um, so we. We met the USS Portland LSD-37 um, seaward of the bridge, bridge tunnel. And the, I remember going into the well deck. I looked to my right, which is looking south. I can see my house. And the last thing I see before I go to the well deck is my house. I'm like, I wonder if I'm going to see that house again. Yeah. And because uh, we, didn't, we didn't know what we were heading out to. No, of course. Yeah. No. And I, I remember because when they were getting ready for the first Gulf War, we were in Florida. My parents had a house down in um, 
St. Pete's just that down there, and we, but there was uh, they had a condo there. And it was right on the water, and we could look across to McDill, which was the American Air Force Base, and mm-hmm. the, the the aircraft were coming in and going out, and the, the old guy that would sit on the dock fishing, he goes, you know, we never see that amount of activity because because yeah. everyone was getting ready to go out to the Gulf. Yeah, the I will say for the for the countries that watch our activities, um, casually observe what we do, and report back to their uh, their uh, their home office. Uh, what was very telling is I, I got a call on Friday. I was actually, I went to ch- back to Charleston to attend my former commanding officer's change of command. And it was like a scene from a movie. I got a call saying, hey, your command is calling you. Um, and they're like, hey, you got to come home. You got to come back. I was like, why? He goes, I can't tell you over the phone, but have you read the paper? And it, and I pick up the local paper from Charleston. And, you know, Iraq invades Kuwait wasn't even above the fold on the first page. I think mm. it was below the fold. So I had to kind of look for it. And I, I assumed he was calling because every I had only been at this command a couple of months, but we, we'd already been stood up to do Haitian evacuation operations. There was something going on in Haiti. So because we have this amphibious ability to go to shore, pick up people and bring them out, um, a lot of times we're stood up like, hey, you got there's a big earthquake. You got to you know, go yeah. get some people. And um, so I just assumed it was something like that. I started reading the news. And I was like, I, I may be going to the Persian Gulf. Um, and sure enough, so that uh, we were supposed to leave the next day, that got delayed till till Sunday, and then Sunday got delayed till Monday. So Saturday, I took the opportunity to go get some clothing. You know, um, it's the only time in my life I've seen more than one guy in line to buy men's underwear. It was like twenty guys are buying men's underwear at the Navy Exchange on the base. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there's and and uh, and ribbons for your uniform. They're getting all uniform items. Uh, wow. I'm like. Something's going on here. Um, and what I didn't realize, the, the U.S. military at the time, and again, I'm not the subject matter expert, but I think our our warfighting strategy was to uh, was built around what's called strategic low-intensity conflicts, slicks. Uh, the Persian Gulf itself, PG-1, was classified a, a slick, a, a strategic low-intensity conflict. So you were able to, our forces were numbered and equipped such that we could fight two of these simultaneously. And when I got to the Persian Gulf, I kind of realized that may not be entirely accurate because the entire amphibious fleet, both East Coast and West Coast, we got together for a group photo, you know, at one of those great at sea photos. Um, I think every amphibious ship that could float was there. At the time. Wow. So uh, we were all out. And I, I think also it's the first time we really got to exercise this level of deployment in quite a while. Um, and they used it as an opportunity to sort of stress test um, capabilities. You know, quite rightly. Oh yeah, absolutely. It uh, it seems like a lifetime ago now, though, doesn't it? When you, we, we talk about ninety one, around that time. Yeah. Uh, when you start remembering time in decades, oh, no. not last year. Um, I I can remember that those times distinctly. Um, yeah. But then you also misremember. I was convinced I joined the military August first, nineteen eighty six. That's I told everybody. Yeah, I joined August first, nineteen eighty six. I left active duty August fifteenth. 1991, you know, five years, 15 days. Now I had joined July 31st, wasn't the right day. Um, <laughs> and the other things along the line, uh, it's just one day off, you know, I'd still get, I guess, partial credit for the answer. Um, but you, these little misrememberings along the way, like, oh yeah. But I'm very fortunate to have, I'm still friendly with some guys uh, on my, for my first ship. Uh, I got one of them living locally, actually. Uh, he's not from the area, but he moved up here for a job. He's, a, he's an attorney. And we get together periodically. And it's cool. just wonderful to sort of walk down memory lane. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's funny. So what's happening now? What, what are we doing now that we're back from Reykjavik? And 
what what's what's life like in boston uh well today it's cold and rainy um, is it but you know you don't have to shovel rain paul so i'll not the rain um it's good. It's nice to be back with family. It's great to be back now that my mom is getting a little more senior. Um, it's good to be back among the family. Um, check in with me in six months, see if I still say the same thing about being <laughs> around my family. Um, but it's, it's nice to reconnect. Um, I was very fortunate in, we lived in this area prior to joining the state department, sold our house and we were able to buy a house in the same town just outside Boston. Um, which I'm very comfortable in. We're very familiar with it. It's accessible to everybody. Uh, it's easy to get to both my wife's family and my family. Um, so I just recently took a job as a contractor with a defense contractor doing security background investigations. Cool. Um, so it's it's one of those, I can work as much or as little as I choose. Um, I think my wife's choice is I will work as much as she chooses. <laughs> um, she keeps showing me the visa bill saying, you, you might be retired, but you're spending money like you're not retired. So um it's it's motivational it's also it's good to get out and, and and be active i'm with a good group of individuals and uh we do a lot of you know backgrounds for military which is always fun to talk to those guys oh yeah especially if they're starting out their careers we you know every recruit has to go through a background investigation and we're one of the contractors that do that and it'll be fun to talk to those guys they're at the you know sort of the springtime of their career uh they've got some i'm sure they have a lot of energy a lot of enthusiasm and absolute misconceptions about what life in the military is going to be like but it's lovely, isn't it? Because when you see these fresh-faced kids and they're going to go down that route, and the job that you joined isn't the job that they joined. I mean, that, and it's the same, no. same with the police. And But if they maintain the same level of enthusiasm or a percentage of it, then they're going to have a great time because it is it, it forms people into what they are in the future. Yeah, one of the things the Navy did, which was um, pretty smart, usually a new crew member shows up at night, they're getting off a plane someplace, they're tired. Uh, it might be the weekend. Um, and the only people left on board are the duty section or those that are restricted to the ship for disciplinary issues. <laughs> um, so let's just say the Navy realized that the first person this guy meets should not be the guy on the ship for disciplinary reasons because he may not have the most favorable opinion of the U.S. Navy. Yeah. Um, F the Navy this, they're screwing me doing this, you know, et cetera. They're just malcontents. Um, and you'll meet them everywhere. So they they started a, um, you know, like a sponsor program. I mean, we got this kid coming. You know, if anybody shows up, you know, in, the, in these windows, you're the person. You're going to take them down to birthing. You're going to make sure their rack is ready to go. You know, their bed is ready to go. You're going to make sure they're fed. You're going to make sure this. You've you got a checklist. You're going to make sure that their welcome on the ship is actually welcoming. Um, I, I thought that was a brilliant move on the, on yeah, the part absolutely. of the, the Navy because a lot of times like, yeah, yeah, your rack's over there. Go figure it out. You know, it, it, it's burdensome to take a new crew member on. Yeah. And they kind of shifted the mentality that, no, it's an opportunity to take somebody and whether they're in for four years or they make a career out of it, they're going to remember their first night on board. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say about the, the discipline element, because I, I can only imagine that when you've got these floating cities with 5,000 members of staff on there, that is it the brig where they, where they, you know, they'll, they'll put people if they get into yeah. serious trouble. Yeah, they, I mean, they still have brigs. They still do. I mean. Yeah. And and depending on what your pay grade is, the commanding officer can put you on bread and water. Wow. I think up to three days. I see. Now, I, I did not see that, thankfully. Um, you know, we, we were on a frigate, fairly small crew. And, and don't forget, a lot of times guys are um, peer disciplined. Uh, I wouldn't find out about things until well after. 
only to find out that either yeah. their teammates took care of it or the chief took care of it. You know, if it gets up to my level, you know, it's 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 sort of I would imagine the same as being a police officer, whether you choose to write the ticket, not choose to write the ticket. Uh, once you, the, the ticket's written and turned in, then it's in the system. You know, once it got to me, it's in the system and it's got to move forward. But we would do, uh, you know, something called cap, captain's mast. The captain is, to you know, to this day still has a lot of control over the, the crew and he can um, dole out punishment. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I always, if I sat in my office and it arrived at my desk, it was too late because I, I it was a fait accompli. I had to deal with things. Yeah. Whereas if, you know, someone else had dealt with, if it, the sergeant had dealt with the, the constable and, and given them words of advice or whatever it may be, it was far better than to go down a, a discipline route because that just undermines the whole the whole office. Everybody, you know, they start to fall out with each other and so on and so forth. Yeah, it was simple things too. Um, very cruel and ingenious things. I had a kid, I was standing, um, when I was new on my ship, we had a kid cross the quarterdeck one morning and he was still drunk from the night before. I mean, just legless. <sighs> and we call his, you know, some guys from his division and they had a very good uh, senior chief, bosun mate. And this guy was in first division, which is the bosun mates. Uh, senior chief Meeks. Um, and he was every inch of bosun mate, kind of big strapping guy, big beer belly, um, very charming guy. Um, did not want to get on his wrong side. And, and this morning, this particular individual got on senior chief's wrong side. And I saw him a couple hours later. I said, senior chief, what did you do with, you know, Seaman so-and-so? And he goes, oh, he's over the side, chip and paint. So I go over <laughs> and it's it's hot as blazes in Charleston in the summertime. And he's on this little, you know, um, uh, Jacob's ladder off the side of the ship, strapped in with a safety harness. And he's got to wear coveralls. He's got to wear a mask, a headdress. You know, he's just sweating profusely. And he's got what's called a needle gun. It's a pneumatic needle gun. So just picture a pneumatic hammer with individual little steel rods. And they you bang the side of the ship to chip the paint off. Wow. And it reverberates into your body. Um, and that's what this kid was doing for probably two hours. And the scene, she said, oh, I don't write people up. Nobody gets written up in first division. This is what they do. That's what they and do. they all know it. So it's like, okay, I, I appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, so taking care of taking care of your own within your own division was always uh, I always liked that option if it was possible. Sometimes you had guys, they just didn't want to be in the Navy anymore. They just walk away. Uh, and as a junior officer, you have to do brig visits as part of your training. You have to go to the brig and you do not want to be on the brig or at the brig on a Navy base. It is not a happy place. No, I can only imagine. Yeah. So how before we finish this interview, because I have got how did you get to meet um Secretary of State Clinton. How how did that come oh, about? Yeah, well, she had come to Norway um, for a visit. Um, and the great thing about the Secretary of State coming to Norway, it's not a contentious visit. It's it's a love fest. I mean, the Norwegians really liked President Obama. They really liked Hillary Clinton. Um, the Norwegians in the U.S. see eye to eye on about ninety five percent of <clears throat> our foreign policy objectives. They they are a big partner for the U.S. and for NATO. Um, so. <laughs> I ended up, I'm, I'm running one of the press elements for that. Um, and I was the assistant public affairs officer at the embassy at the time. And I had to get one of our photographers, one of our local staff from one location up to the palace. So I get her up to the palace um, and we get her in and we're in this room and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And then we're in a holding area and one of the palace flunkies comes by and says, okay, let's go. We all got to go. And I'm like, okay. So I get up and go. I don't know what we're doing, but I'm a good order follower. I'm going to go. And uh, 
it was one of those weird staircases. I can only describe like a Harry Potter type of staircase, like a door opened up. We're in this windy, windy staircase. We're going up three or four flights, I think, because we were going in circles and you're getting a little, it's like one of those um, Burns dinner things where you have to turn yourself around a post and you get kind of look uh, yep. disoriented in your head. A door opens up and we're in this outer, outer office and there's a some sort of secretary sitting there and she goes, okay, in that room there. And they close the door and I realize it's one of those doors that's a wall. You have to know the door is there. It's pretty <laughs> cool. So it's it's basically the servant staircase. And we go into this room and there's a Navy commander sitting at a table. It's a fairly big room. And she's not saying anything. We all line, they all line up and they're, they don't know what I'm doing there because I don't have a camera. And I pull out my schedule and I see, you know, Secretary Clinton meets the, you know, King Harold in the bird room at the palace. And I look around at the wallpaper and the wallpaper is covered with birds. And I kind of lean over to the commander and I said, is this the bird room? She said, yes. And I said, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. She goes, it's too late. And one of the flunkies comes in, one of the, one of their uh, palace guys comes in and goes, he looks right at me and goes, your secretary is late. And I'm watching the clock and we're about one minute over. Now we're keeping the king waiting, which is not good form. And I was near a window, thankfully, and I could see her motorcade coming up the main drag. Um, and I said, she's arriving right now. He goes, okay, good. And suddenly the door opens. Secretary of State walks in one door. The, uh, the other door opens. The king comes out. And I'm literally is, you know, like three feet away. They're right in front of me. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. Please don't ask me any questions. And it was <laughs> thankfully um, King Harold is i don't want to say he's pro-american anti-american but if i had to guess he's really pro-american he was evacuated during world war ii oh was um, he? roosevelt put him and his family up in the white house for a while oh wow um when they evacuated through sweden and uh, so he i think he's a fan i think he's he appreciates the united states so um she's like oh your majesty he goes oh call me harold and they do a little hug and they go off in the other room and it's like one of those things oh i'm almost touching greatness yeah uh, almost but not quite surreal um but yeah, it was, it's got, you know, the, the career, the, the job has provided me these you know, unique opportunities. I was once um, arrested by the French Air Force, kind of. Um, they were doing NATO air policing in Keflavik. Uh, this is after the base closed. Um, and we, we would have these NATO deployments up there to do uh, NATO air policing of the North Atlantic and the Baltics. And um, they, we had a new officer, a new consular officer at the embassy. So I, I and one of the local staff brought her out to the airport to meet the local airport authorities. Cause I'm, I was at the airport all the time. That was part of my portfolio. I had, um, airside access. And so we were getting her a badge at the time. So she, sometimes the consular officer has to sort of escort Americans all the way to the plane. Right. You know, if they're leaving the country for whatever reason, uh, if they're, if they have mental issues, health issues, you know, you want to make sure they get on that plane. So we were getting her set up with that. And, um, she had, uh, do you want a tour of the base? She said, sure. So we give her a tour of the base and, um, we're, we're now on the air side and I'm like, oh, they're doing NATO air police and you want to go see the French Air Force. And she said, oh, sure. Yeah, let's go see. And, you know, I am the U.S. UCOM, U.S. European Command military representative to the Republic of Iceland slash assistant to the defense attache. So I'm like, oh, yeah, this is part of my poor. I'll go over and say hi to the guys. I don't know these guys. And they also don't know me. So I pull up in my, you know, my suburban with my green diplomatic plates. And I think I sort of surprised the sort of the gate guard, the guy that's on the road. And he kind of turned, he stopped, he's like, uh, in his, luckily he spoke English and he said, can I, can I help you? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm Commander Garrity. And, you know, he goes, oh, oh, uh, come with me. And he 
took us into this building and I realized, I think we're in a locked room now. And, and I was like, oh, well, no, we can take off. He goes, no, no, I'll get my, all he could say was, I'll get my officer. I'll get my officer. And um, so suddenly, I, I don't know what rank this guy is. He comes in and I come explain who I am. And I said, but we need to leave now. And he goes, oh, okay, okay. He kind of understood better what, who I was and what I did. So we left. Not three minutes later, I get a phone call from my contact at the Icelandic Defense Agency. And he goes, were you just arrested by the French police? Because they're going back to the, their host are the Icelandic government. They're contacting their people like, hey, this just happened. Was this a, you know, who is this guy? And uh, I said, I wasn't arrested by the French Air Force. And then he pauses and he says, so you surrendered to the French Air Force? <laughs> I said, okay, let's go with arrested. I, I'll, I'll say I was arrested by the French Air Force. So oh, um, Icelanders, what a lot of people don't realize, they are, their DNA is about 38% Celtic. They're, yeah. they're basically our kissing cousins. Yeah. Uh, so they have that strain of Irish wit. It's not at the surface like it is with most Irish people, but it, it is there. And it, you don't have to do much to mine it. And this gave him a good opportunity to, Fantastic. you know, throw it through a jab in which I always I appreciate it. That was a great line. So yeah, uh, this job, as I said, it's a career. I look back on it. If your listeners are probably thinking you haven't held a job for longer than, you know, 10 years or so, but, um, yeah, 10 or 12 years. Um, well, the military was, I think all told 24 years. Yeah. I, I practiced law, you know, 14, 15 years. Uh, I was in the state department 12 years. So you've done your time. Now yeah. Now it's time for something else. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, Patrick, Thank you so much for your time today. Before we end all our interviews, I'm going to give you the opportunity to add also or correct anything that we've discussed along the way. Paul, you cannot unring the bell. Uh, I said what I said. That's, that's no, no, it's fine. That's but thank you for that opportunity. I always appreciate when I listen to the podcast, and I am a regular listener, uh, that that opportunity at the end. It's, I think it's good journalism. That's brilliant, mate. Well, listen, I look forward to seeing you in Boston in a few yes. weeks' time. Um, send my love to your family. And I, I look forward to seeing your mum. And uh, I think she get a great kick out of uh, seeing you. Yeah, it'd be brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today. And I'm really grateful. I know I say it to all the contributors, but I'm really grateful. The fact that you've got up at an unearthly hour and that you've sat and spoken to me for this length of time, I'm really grateful. But I look forward to you, seeing you. You owe me soon. a beer. Oh, I do. Or two. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah, this is uh, this is the worst green room I've ever been in. <laughs>